You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. You've heard him before. He blogs at Rational Urbanism. He's been a member for a long, long time, and actually one of our most favorite podcast guests. We always get really good feedback when Steve is on. All the way from the land of Dr. Seuss in Springfield, Stephen Schultes. Welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Hey, thanks, Chuck. I think it's important to say Springfield, Massachusetts. Oh, Springfield, Mass. I, I, I just like. There are so many. Is there another one? Yeah. Oh, I, let me think. Is there? I, <laughs> I was once told that I was once told that it was the capital of Illinois, and I thought how generous of the people of Illinois to put their capital in Massachusetts. That would have been nice. It's really nice of them. The last time we chatted, I know we talked about the pedestrian death at the library, the one I wrote about a couple of years ago. And the fact that people had been still like protesting, that they go out and be angry about it, and there wasn't a lot of movement on it. Has there, has there been anything that's surfaced on that, or is it still kind of in the same position it was a couple years ago? Well, one of the things that I actually uncovered just a few weeks ago, might have been a month and a half ago, was that I found on the, the local regional planning site, uh, the Pioneer Valley Planning Commission, I found a, a plan to actually make some pedestrian changes to uh, the street that I live on, Maple Street, and there, there's some discussion also of that State Street corridor, which really was just redone. I mean, I think when we had, I don't think you and I have actually had the, the discussion about that specific thing. I know that you discussed it at length on, on the podcast right after it happened, but I can't remember if I mentioned, but I mean, I was part of the citizens group that begged the city to put in a traffic light at the crossing from the the parking lot to the library and was rebuffed at every turn by the DPW director. Everyone else in the city that I've ever worked with has always tried to get to yes, everyone. But that particular DPW director, who's no longer the DPW director, was intransigent. There's no other way to say it. We had 15, 16 different recommendations for ways to make the crossing safe. And, of course, for those of you who haven't seen it, I mean, if you go to the video that my daughter made before the crash, which, again, she, you know, she can't help it. She's funny. And so she does a great job of making a, she is. She's you know, awesome. a, really, a really interesting video. But, of course... As you stated in your blog post, once you realize what's happened because of the situation she described, that, you know, a little girl is dead forever, um, it, it's no longer funny. Because what they decided to do was to, to essentially try to force people through brutal engineering to walk down to the closest intersection across and then come back up the hill to the library when a straight line shot where there used to be a crosswalk takes about 15 seconds, it's about a four-minute walk around. And it, it's very reminiscent of the Florida case with the woman who got off the bus after shopping and instead of going, you know, a mile around with her, with her kids, crossed the street directly and 
her child was killed and I think she was convicted of manslaughter. You know, it's that it's 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 not exactly the same, of course, but it's it's the idea that obviously people are not going to do what the engineers want them to do. They're going to go straight across, even if you plant bushes and even if you put up bollards with chains between them. And that's what my daughter's video shows. In any case, you know, we tried so hard before that incident to do something about it. Uh, I know that the Civic Association is still, you know, actively looking to improve it. But the fact is they spent, you know, that staircase probably cost more than, than I spent to buy my house and all for, you know, no good reason because it's, you know, it is a trash receptacle. And if you look at my daughter's video, that's all that nobody, nobody uses it. It's there as an excuse. It's there to, it's there to say, if you get hit crossing the street, it's your fault. We provided you this wonderful cement staircase. It's almost the opposite of a desire path where it's like, okay, here's the desire path. And so instead of going, you, you say, okay, how do we thwart that, you know, in every way possible. And then when we can't thwart it, just kind of ignore that people are actually crossing there because it's, it's vastly more rational. And the desire paths are there still when you, Oh, right. Um, yeah. If you go there, you can see where the, where people have managed to remove the lower of the two chains that stretch between the bollards. And so there they can, you know, sneak under the one chain. And what you have there is this rut, which I guess you go, know, it's a desire path is a desire rut. You know, the employees from the library, what they do is they go to the driveway and they cross at the driveway, which is on the other side. You, you say people, you mean undesirables, like, you know, ne'er-do-wells who are... <laughs> well, it's, again, you watch the videos and what you see is, you know, men in suits. Right. Women in dresses. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, everyone does it. And, that, and that absolutely, positively, everyone crosses there. And my daughter, after she made the video, she spent two or three hours there. And she said she did not see a single person follow the, the engineering mandated route. Absolutely everyone that was going from the parking lot to the library found a way to cross in the middle of State Street, which again is a four-lane road. And that really, it speaks to, you know, a lot of what I want to talk about uh, today is, is that idea that there are people who, who I think mean well, but, but in the end, they, they don't know what they're doing. I mean, there's no, there's no nice way to say it. They, they think they're doing the right thing. Like, I don't think the DPW director wanted that little girl to die, but I think he, he killed her <laughs> by his decision. In retrospect, I don't think he would think any differently about his decision. I think he would still, he would blame the mother or, or blame the woman who was driving. I, just for people who haven't heard you before, I want to make sure that everybody understands, because we're going to talk about people dying for a little bit here and the cause of those deaths. You blog at rationalurbanism.com. You're actually one of our most provocative blockers too. I, I love your stuff. It pushes the boundaries, but you live in a neighborhood that most people would categorize as undesirable maybe let's say absolutely absolutely i live i live where you're not supposed to live if you have options it's i always feel like before we we start down the course i have to say this when you name your site rational urbanism you can really set yourself up 
And, and I want to be the first one to say that, that my decision to live here is not rational at all. It's, it's an emotional thing. It's a subjective thing. I feel about my hometown the way a lot of people feel about the United States. I don't feel a whole lot of patriotism. I'm different from a lot of people in that way. I, what, I guess what a lot of people feel in patriotism, I feel for my community. I feel it for Springfield, and I guess I just don't have any left. But, but that's how I feel. And so I think just how a, a lot of people would say, kind of a my country right or wrong, I, I feel not necessarily my city right or wrong, but I feel like I'm, I live here because I've always felt drawn, one, to live in the community where I was born, and two, I've always felt drawn to the urban core. And, and the issue that I address in the, in the, uh, the feature that I created at Rational Urbanism last year, uh, Death Race 2016, had to do with the criticisms that I would get for living where I live. Um, people would question me, and we've discussed this before. I encourage people to go back and listen to the, you know, to listen to the, the podcast on schools. But the other reason that people give for criticizing my decision to live here with my family, especially when I have options to live, you know, just about anywhere in the area, is that uh, I put them in great danger. Having lived in the neighborhood for 30 years, I know what the actual dangers are, and there are some. For example, I do think that I'm in, in greater danger of being uh, sort of caught as an innocent bystander in, in a shootout over a drug deal gone bad. I think that that's much more likely to happen to me here than it is to happen uh, in a farmer's field out in Hatfield, Massachusetts. Having said that, I think that the chances of that happening are still a one in a million. It's just that maybe in the farmer's field in Hatfield, it's one in 10 million. But it, but it is more likely here. I mean, in my experience, and, and I've been paying attention for a long time, I don't know that that's ever happened here. I mean, I remember a case in New, in New Haven, Connecticut, which is, I think, a similar community, where there was a guy, you know, I think in a neighborhood fairly similar to this who was in his house and was shot, you know, and I think we hear about those kinds of things every once in a while. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't deny that in the neighborhood where I live, that's more likely to happen than in a lot of other neighborhoods where people of my social class and race tend to live. You know, I, I want to start with that because I'm not trying to be Pollyanna and I'm not trying to be Mary Poppins, but what I am trying to be is having made the emotional decision the subjective decision to live where I live, uh, I want to describe, I want to explain to people why it's not as, as crazy as they think it is. And what happened was, I think the best way to, to get into what Death Race 2016 is or was, is I was at a party with one of the editors of the local online manifestation of the paper of record. And I was talking to him about what I viewed as their exploitative coverage of violence in the city of Springfield. And his argument was that people needed to know how dangerous it was in Springfield. And to me, I said, well, first of all, I think that it's oversold, given that I've lived in, you know, one of the areas that a, a lot of people would consider to be more dangerous, and it really has never touched me personally in 30 years. And as a matter of fact, I've never really seen it. 
you know? So I think, I know it's out there and I've done some analysis of it. And from what I can see, even though a lot of what we see seems to be place related because it occurs in similar locations, it's really behavior related. I mean, most of the, most of the violence that you see is relative to drug activity, gang activity, and domestic violence. So, you know, it doesn't really matter where you live. If you're in a gang, if you buy and sell drugs, or if you're in a relationship with the wrong person, that's really what puts you in danger. Now, and I wouldn't deny that people who are in gangs, uh, in, are involved with the drug trade, are more likely to live in this community than somewhere else. But still, if I'm not doing it, then my risk is, again, that sort of innocent bystander thing, which doesn't happen that frequently. I mean, it just doesn't. I mean, it could happen tomorrow, but, you know, it's been years since it's happened. In, in my experience, and I've been looking at it pretty closely. So anyway, in talking to him, I was saying, you know, actually, if you look at a University of Virginia study from back in the early 2000s, it talks about how stranger danger actually increases the further you get from the center of a metro area. And that's really the kind of danger that people are worried about, the random type of danger. You know what I mean? I mean, if you're, Chuck, if your wife is going to kill you, if your wife is going to kill you, she's going to kill you whether you live in Brainerd or whether you live in, where were you guys living before? Oh, uh, just north of Baxter, out in the woods. Yeah. It, with Baxter, right? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and, and don't give me, I haven't heard anything, so I think you're fine. But, but the point being... <laughs> there's, if, days if, I w- if, there's days I wouldn't blame her. <laughs> right, right. No, I get that. But again, living in Baxter, living in Brainerd, that doesn't really have an impact. What, we're, what people are worried about, what people think puts me in greater danger, is that I'm going to walk out of my house, and because of the neighborhood I live in, I'm just going to get like, randomly stabbed. That's what they think. So there's this University of Virginia study that shows that actually... If you think about being killed by a stranger, it's more likely to happen in exurbia, primarily because the weapon of choice there is the car. And it's accidental, but you're just as dead. So now he said, well, I think that people are plenty aware that cars are dangerous. And I said, well, by that rationale, you really don't think that given the media coverage of of urban violence, that people are aware that there's crime in Springfield. And he really didn't have a response to that. He's defending his coverage of the uh, sensational crime, essentially ignoring the, the automobile accidents by saying like, everyone's aware that, that, you know, that driving's dangerous, but people are not fully aware of how dangerous it is to live in a high crime neighborhood. Exactly. And, and I call BS on that. Well, and it's, and it's his duty as a newspaper uh, publisher or whatever to educate the public properly. Right, exactly. That's, that's what he was saying. Right. So what I wanted to point out to him is that, and this is where we get into the death race 2016 thing, is that every single homicide in the city of Springfield will always include a link to a map of all of the homicides that have taken place in Springfield in the last 15 years. It will include a link to another one that has any homicides that have taken place this year, like none so far this year, but the moment there is one, uh, there's a map created and an interactive website. And I told him, I said, when you look at automobile crashes and, and road deaths, 
that never happens. There's never any context given. You have no idea how many people have died on the roadways of Greater Springfield in a given week, a given month, a given year. So I said, I'm going to do it myself. And what was crazy... Even though the latter is actually much less random. <laughs> right. You no, know? no, no. And that, and, right. Right. And, right. and the thing is, right, that, that's just it. That the, when you look, and there's, there's so many things to discuss, so many things to parse, but you know, at the end of the day, you can see how much more random the, the traffic deaths are and how the homicide deaths are not. So I start this feature. I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what you guys do. I'm going to create that site that you go to where it has a list of all of the traffic deaths of 2016. And I'm going to call it Death Race 2016 because here's the idea. I see I didn't want to go back in time and do it for like the previous year because then people can think, well, maybe you're cherry picking. Sure, you know? sure. Like, okay, you, choose, you chose that year because you looked at it and you know that it's favorable to you. And I said, no, I'm going to do it live because this way, uh, you know, I have no idea. For all I know, more people are going to get murdered in the city of Springfield than are going to die in traffic death. So, let, you know, let's, let's take this on. This is amazing, Chuck. The first eight days of the year in greater Springfield, so January 1st to January 8th, there were eight traffic deaths. And, and, and now there are only 59 for the whole year. When I say only, I mean, obviously that's, that's, you know, 59 too many, but I think you know what I'm saying. So there were eight straight days where there were traffic deaths. Or I should say after the eighth day, we were already up to eight traffic deaths. Not a single story on a single one of those events mentioned any of the others in any of the media outlets. So eight deaths in the first eight days, and not a single reference to that fact right. in the media. No, no one's linking anything. No one's looking. No one's linking anything introspectively at this problem. You're not even two percent through the year, and you've already had eight people dead. Uh, right. And, I mean, you look at it, and they would have had it been had it been urban violence. They would have extrapolated it out and said, "Well, this would mean that you know the traffic deaths would be 300." You know, if my math is good. One a day would be about 365. You know, they would have done that. As a matter of fact, we had, we had a situation uh, four or five years ago where two murders almost took place on the same day. Now, you heard what I just said, right? Two murders almost took place on the same day, and they did two stories on it in the local paper. And, and I had to explain to the reporter that, you know, in a, in a community where you average – you know, a rolling average, which is the best way to actually look at, uh, at homicides, you know, the, the law of small numbers, things like that. I'm sure you get statistically how that works. Um, you do a rolling average. Springfield averages about 14 homicides a year. That means you've got a 25% chance of two of them occurring on the same day. It's like the birthday thing. If yeah, you have, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you have oh. a room with 25 people, totally. you've, actually, you've actually got a greater than uh, half likelihood of two people having the same birthday. Now, you know, it doesn't seem that way. It doesn't seem like it sh that should be the case, but it is the case. So anyway, I had to explain this to them. And, and, he, and it was the same editor. And he said, well, don't you think that's a big deal? And I said, actually, it's not. It's just a, <laughs> just a statistical anomaly. Right. And, and, and don't get me wrong, I think probably 
if if the Greater Springfield area averages somewhere between 50 and 70 uh, road deaths a year, then maybe eight and eight days also is a statistical anomaly. But but the point is, when that statistical anomaly occurs and it's relative to violence, they're all over it. But they never connect road deaths. There was a, there was a an almost incident on Union Street, which I can see from my front window. No one was hurt, but, you know, some people in the neighborhood were upset. And someone posted on there, I think there was, there was gunfire, and someone posted on the front door, you know, children live in this neighborhood, you know, get a clue, that kind of thing. And one of the local reporters uh, wrote a piece about, you know, how, you know, Union Street was the most dangerous street in Springfield. And the most dangerous street in Western Mass, or something like that. And I pointed out that uh, Route 20 in Brimfield, which is, you know, an ex-urban, four-lane, undivided highway, three kids died just that week on that stretch. And if you looked back three or four years, many more children had died, actually, on that stretch of road. But you would know that, of course, because that doesn't get reported in that way in the media. So I did that for 2016. I can't keep doing it because it's too mentally draining. I hate the idea of looking at the, you know, the local paper, looking at the TV site, looking at the, uh, looking at mass live, the, um, website I'm talking about for the most part and looking for traffic deaths. You know what I mean? I, it, I, it, I totally feel very morbid. Oh yeah. And also there, and you can't help but be, Oh, there was an accident. I wonder if someone died. And then you realize, like, think about what you're thinking. And I mean, I'm not causing it by thinking that, but it's just not, uh, it's not a great place to be mentally. But the numbers ended up, there were uh, 13 homicides in the city of Springfield. There were 59 traffic deaths in the region. Of the homicides, two were, and this, this is according to police, Two were cases where the victim was, was, where the assailant and the victim didn't know each other. And there were, oh, I think uh, 27, no, 30, yeah, I think it was 27. We could look at the, I should have my website. I'm on up. the site right now. Um, you got 30. Oh, how many, where it says uh, stranger 34. traffic death. 34. 34. So it's 34 to two. Yeah. So I think, you know, the UVA study there, you know, pretty much plays out. I mean, you know, if you're really worried about being killed by a stranger, worry about living in a place where there are no sidewalks or where, you know, you drive 45, 50 miles an hour on a road that's, uh, you know, that on a two-lane road. It's an undivided road. I mean, that's, that's where those things happen. As you're pulling this data in, you're basically seeing a homicide a month on average, and you're seeing an automobile death right of a little bit more than one a week. Right. Yeah. Right. And it went all the, almost all the way through. It was pretty much, I think it was every, every five or so traffic deaths, you, you'd see a homicide. Again, the, if you look at the, the 13 homicides, uh, with very few exceptions, they were all males. There was one female victim. Um, that was a case, and they're calling it a homicide. I, I'm not sure why it was a the the story that's in the media and that's from the police report was that it was a a young man i think 16 years old who was playing with a gun and it went off accidentally and killed his girlfriend 
Okay. Um, that's horrible. Right. Um, but that's the, that was the only female victim. And all but uh, one of the victims was minority, uh, either black or Hispanic. And all but three were between the ages of uh, 20 and 39. Whereas when you look at the, the victims of the automobile crashes, they're, they, they're much more reflective of the broader community. Uh, the youngest was nine. The oldest was in her 90s. So that there was a, a, a nine-year-old boy, a 90-something-year-old woman, and just about everything in between. And to me, that, that shows the, the random nature of traffic deaths. And I think the point that I, that I try to make with that and I've written about quite a few times in my blog, is that, uh, listen, I'm not saying that I, I, I don't drive. I'm also not saying that I don't walk on sidewalks where, you know, an accident could occur and I could be a victim. Um, but the fact is, I drive much less. I drive shorter distances at lower speeds because I live in an urban environment. And I think that that more than balances out the increased danger from the crime that is endemic to, you know, the neighborhood where I live. And I always feel it's important to say it's not the entire, I happen to live in a part of the city that is, you know, more urban. I like it. You know, I like density. I, I like being uh, close within walking distance of, you know, the AHL uh, franchise arena, I like all the restaurants close by. I like the Italian places close by. But, you know, you can live in what's called the city of Springfield and live in a neighborhood where, you know, people don't lock their doors. I mean, my mom never did. She lived in Springfield. But I'm trying to make the case. I don't think it's at all irrational. I think, that, I mean, if you don't like cities, don't move here. But if you do, people are going to try and scare you. And, well, and, you know, not intentionally, but I think maybe even people who care, but they think they're giving you good advice. They're saying, well, you can't live there because, you know, you're going to be the victim of crime. And my experience over 30 years is that you're, you're not. I mean, I think I've had experiences where I've met people from Springfield who, you know, to be perfectly frank, they're, they're from the minority community and they're poor. And their experience living here is very different from mine. Their, their experience is, I think, what people believe living in a city is like you know they know people who've been shot i don't know anyone who's been shot ever you know not even shot at that you know it's totally foreign to my experience and i'm not saying by the way that people who get shot deserve it or that it's okay because it happens to other people i'm just saying that, that it does relate to who you who you interact with and it may be in certain situations who you're forced to interact with if it's family if you know what i mean right you know right. what i mean your family we don't get to choose our family you know and and sometimes you know that that can be a burden but i think that if if you're the kind of person and it isn't just and you know i know you know this but to the audience listening i'm not just talking about springfield i mean i don't know what the community would be around you that would be the most similar if it would be you know, if it would be St. Paul or if it would be Duluth or if it would be Milwaukee, you know, I don't know. But I think there are a lot of places where people are told that if you're if you have an option, you know, you definitely shouldn't live in the urban core of this or that city. But what I would say is, you know, talk to the urban pioneers who are there and ask them what their real experiences are. Because what I always try to say is I think that there are, you know, there are annoyances that relate to living 
where I live. I mean, just this last year, I've written quite a bit about, because uh, I think there's some gentrification taking place in my neighborhood, and there's some discussion about how gentrification can cause perhaps an increase in crime. And what I've noticed, like nuisance crime, what I've noticed is for the first time ever, now that a few of the vacant buildings across the street are now, um, have been, you know, rehabbed and refurbished, for the first time ever in my backyard last summer, I had to shoo people out who were engaged in, uh, who were engaged in yeah, using drugs and... Fornication. And, uh, and, and fornication, yes. Fornication. And, you know, <laughs> and it was like, huh, interesting. <laughs> you know, like, no. And and my feeling was it really meant is I feel bad for them that the best place they have to, you know, do that is underneath my grape arbor. But you're not welcome. Sorry. When we moved to town here in Brainerd, actually Zillow has my entire neighborhood as a high crime neighborhood, and I thought that was bizarre because I, you know, there was a homicide here a couple of years ago. Uh, there was one on the south side last year. Uh, but there was one in the neighborhood I moved to. It was a, a drug thing, actually. Two guys were upset about a drug deal. They walked in, shot two people in the head, and and left. They chased them down and caught them, and they're both in prison. So it's a pretty one-off kind of thing. But but my neighborhood was labeled high crime. And actually, on Zillow, you can click and get the crime statistics. And it was all like traffic crime. I mean, there was a little bit of like uh, – there were a couple of burglaries and things like that. So – I want to ask you this. When I, when I visited you and stayed at your place and, and was terrified, you know, not, a couple of blocks away from you were these beautiful uh, kind of brownstones that I kind of fell in love with that I really thought, like, I could see myself living here. You know the ones I'm talking about? A lot of our neighborhood is that. Now, are you talking about ones that were more or less vacant? No, no. I think they were occupied. Um, oh, so this is Mattoon Street. I think that's the one, Yeah. I was looking at them and thinking, okay, these are a couple hundred thousand dollars here, which is really rich for your neighborhood. If you were to transport that to Manhattan, it'd be a $20 million place. So if Chuck Marone, the, you know, 43 year old professional white dude, uh, with two young girls and a, a professional wife, we're going to be moving to Springfield. And, you know, we were looking at that place or we were looking at a place, you know, way out in the greater Springfield area. And, and the concern was, gosh, we just, you know, we're concerned about dying and we're concerned about uh, threats to our lives. You're telling me what? Oh, I, I'm telling you, honestly, that's not, that shouldn't be where your concern uh, should be. I, you know, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, you're, you know, I would, you know, I tell people, I, yeah, I live in downtown Springfield. I haven't been murdered for weeks. In my experience, those aren't the issues that, that you have to worry about. What, what you do have to worry about is like, this true story. As we were talking, one of the local, I mean, it's snowing today. We actually get quite, it's almost Minnesota like here. I think we got about a foot of snow. <laughs> Beautiful. And uh, so I have the day off. And um, oh, of course you do. <laughs> right, right. One of our, I know in Minnesota, that'd be like, are you kidding me? Only a foot? That's exactly Get what we'd say. School, kids. Yeah. Um, but anyway, one of our local prostitutes was, uh, you know, walking back and forth in front of my window. I mean, that, you know, that is, for some people, I think that would be sort of untenable. 
I don't know how to, I don't know how to put this. You know, I know other people, well, why don't you know, get off the put Chuck on call waiting and call the police. I'm just not going to do that. I don't think getting arrested is going to help her. And I, and I'm also, and that's, you know, that's a, that's kind of a political point of view, I guess, you know, and I also feel like, I don't think it, it's a symptom. It doesn't make the neighborhood more dangerous. I think, I think what it shows is, uh, I think she's probably addicted to heroin or something like that. And, and that's why she's out doing what she's doing. And I think that while that happens, you know, unfortunately now we see that that's happening in a lot of neighborhoods. I think it's probably, uh, you know, a, a more frequent occurrence here. What, what I would tell you is that that kind of danger isn't really the issue. I think the, the, the real issue has to do with how comfortable you are with the nuisance elements of living in a real diverse neighborhood when it comes to income. Because what you're going to get a lot of is you're going to get a lot of panhandling. Even, even on Mattoon Street, you know, you're, you're going to get bad behavior in front of the house, you know, a broken beer bottle. You know, we had a case we left out some planters that uh, we calibrated incorrectly and they were a little too small. So they looked beautiful for a week and then they were gone. There, there are things like that. Again, I think that, the, you know, the, the $90,000 price I got for my place, you know, it makes up for that. I can afford to make some mistakes with planters and then, you know, buy new ones. You also got to get amazing Italian pastries for like two bucks. Right, exactly. And, uh, I said what I save, what I save on pastries, I may have to spend on, you know, buying new flower pots for the front. And, and again, the other thing is, you know, maybe there are some neighborhoods in the city of Springfield where I grew up, my, you know, my mom and dad's neighborhood, what was my neighborhood. I think if I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and I felt the urge to just go for a walk, I would. I, I don't think I ever did, but I mean, if I really wanted to, I think I could. Um, would I do that here? No. I got to run and grab the kids and bring them to dance. So I got to, I got to take off. But before we go, I want to ask you one last question. What would you like the newspaper? And I realize you're smart enough to not think the newspaper should be printing, you know, your propaganda. If the newspaper were going to be fair and actually, you know, give people news kind of consistent with what that publisher said his mission was, which is to make sure people were properly informed, what, what would you hope that the newspaper would do from this point forward? Perfect. I'm going to give you an example. The, the numbers in murders in Springfield have gone in the last three years from 13 to 18 to 13. The year they went from 13 to 18, the headline in the paper was murder rate spikes in Springfield. This year, when the rate went for that, when the number, not the rate, but the, the, the number went from 18 down to 13, they put it in a story with the overall murder rate in Massachusetts, and the headline was, um, homicides in Massachusetts climbed slightly, which was by two. And it mentioned in the body of the article, oh, by the way, homicides went from 18 to down to 13 in Springfield, and but but, you know, it's such a small number that... So what happens is they always nuance and really get into what the homicide numbers mean when it looks good for the city. When it looks bad for the city, it's, it's murder rate spikes. What I would like to see is just an honest treatment of what the numbers mean, how they relate to the behavior of the people involved, and that they not do things like this is a classic. There'll be a drug deal gone bad, and what they'll do is 
they'll interview people in random parts of the city and they'll say things like, do you feel more in danger? And I think people feel like they need to say yes. This is the classic. They'll say something like, do you think crime is getting worse in Springfield? Why are you asking that question? That's a data question. And, and the data shows that actually crime's been going down steadily since 1992. But what you do is when a, when a murder takes place the day before, you then go and ask that question so that you can get the, the most emotional response you can get from people. Don't do that. That's what I would say. Don't do that. And I would also say if you're going to – and when it comes to traffic deaths, do what you do with automobile deaths. Give us some context. How many people have died this year in Greater Springfield? How many people on that road? You know, what's the, what's the, the age distribution? You know, be honest. Because, you know, one last thing, and this isn't just the local paper, but it is, actually it is, because they publish it. They publish these reports. Just the other day, some kind of an online organization came up with, you know, a list of, you know how these lists are, the 10 most dangerous and the 10 safest cities and towns in Massachusetts. And the only thing that list looked at was crime statistics. So the fact that I live, you know, maybe four minutes away from the region's top emergency room apparently doesn't make me safer. They don't look at things like traffic deaths. They don't look at things like accidental deaths, which, you know, you lived on a farm, and I think, you know, living and working on a farm is dangerous. You know, really dangerous. I have, I have former um, students who've been seriously injured. I, it happens where the school that I teach, there's an agriculture program. And I know it's, it's, it, you know, it's a lot more dangerous than being a high school Spanish teacher. It's funny that you say that because, like you said about the, uh, you know, the, the Puerto Ricans and what have you in your neighborhood, they all know someone who got shot. Everybody who grew up on a farm knew someone who had gotten like their arm ripped off or gotten killed in a, you know, combine or something. Like every, everybody had a story like that. That's fascinating. I never thought about that. We all did. They, they don't put that, they don't put that in there. And, and I think that vetting, the things like that that they put out there. Now I know that they're thinking this is just clickbait, but I think that it's I think that it's more than that. I think if you are a, a news source and you're publishing something like that, then you're validating their data and what they're saying. I, I think be critical, publish it, but then say, look how ridiculous that is, this is that this website that claims to analyze the, the relative safety of different communities doesn't take into account accident rates, uh, traffic deaths, and again, things like proximity to hospitals. And that's just off the top of my head. I mean, that's what they don't do. And, and I also understand this is, I know that you've got to go, but this is one, one last thing is I think, you know, there's a, there's a doctorate out there in journalism for someone who will do an analysis of how the lack of funds that, that um, newspapers especially now have and how that's changed how they report the news. And I know that the local newspaper here, you know, they're working on a shoestring budget. And I know what the reporters do. They sit around, they listen to the police scanner, and, you know, they write down what they hear on the police scanner because they've, they've got to produce four or five stories a day. Now, I think it's the case that, right or wrong, 30 years ago, a murder in a poor neighborhood might have been on the front page of the local section or might have actually been an inside page. 
you know, because they had actual reporters going out and, and reporting on, you know, actual news, you know, things that were going on, reporting, doing investigative journalism. There's no money for that anymore. So what they do is it's fires, it's traffic accidents, tra- you know, car crashes, and it's crime. So I think that's also changed the perception of, of danger in our urban communities because, again, you look at the crime statistics in Springfield. Crime is, is down 60 70% since the 90s, but you wouldn't know it from looking at the media because when you click on Mass Live and you go to that page, if it's not sports, it's violence. You know, there's very little, and, and there's, you know, pictures of events and things like that, but there's, there's very little actual reporting. Every once in a while there is. You know, and that's good. And I know that that's not because they don't want to do good reporting. It's that, you know, they're not bringing in the money like they used to. But I think it would be very interesting just to look at that. Look at murders in a given city. Again, it could be Milwaukee. It could be Minneapolis. You know, and look at how the same crime got treated 40 years ago, 30 years ago, and how it's getting treated now in the in the era of the Internet and when newspapers are struggling. You know, how is that different? And how does that change our perception of what cities are like? You know, so it's, so I mean, I think it's complex. And I think, you know, uh, it's a, you know, it's quixotic, but, you know, I'm a Spanish teacher. So who better to engage in a, in a sort of quixotic battle against uh, local media? So what I would tell you, Chuck, and is what I am telling you is move in. Dude. Move in and we'll work it out. You'll be safe. You'll love the restaurants. When I moved to my neighborhood now, I would lock the doors to my car. I never did that at the other place, but I, you know, cause I, I started doing it now and I've just gotten to that point where I leave my car open now. Like I don't even lock it. And I'm like, okay, what are you going to steal out of my car? Even if you did, like there's nothing in there. So like what, 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 what am I all paranoid about? So yeah, right, it's taking uh, the car itself is a lot of effort. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you, I mean, I've got 275,000 miles on the car. If you stole it, I'd, <laughs> I'd probably, I'd probably come out ahead, you know? So, Hey, right. What the heck? Uh, I, look, that happened to me. The first night I slept here, Chuck, Yeah. first night I slept here, I, I remember I came down to the living room where I am right now, and yeah. I actually, uh, I screwed the window shut. Okay, right, right. I'm not, I'm not kidding, you know, yeah, I, I yeah. was like, oh my gosh, I haven't been in this part of the neighborhood. I mean, I'd been in other parts of the neighborhood for 20-something years, but I hadn't been over here. So this was the other side. And I'm like, I don't know, this could be pretty crazy over here. Yeah, and now, you know. Not at all. It's uh, you know now I'm I'm much more comfortable with it. So well, Steve, thanks so much. I hope people I hope people will look at it and, yeah. and more importantly, um, analyze the media coverage where they are and and look for the sort of biases and 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 see if they're manifest elsewhere. I I think they are. I've heard from people um, in Buffalo and in other cities in Providence, and they say essentially. That's what they see there as well. And, and I think the truth is, you know, cities are safer than they've been in a long time. And it's, it's a reasonable, rational decision to live in a city like Springfield if it's what you want to do. Rationalurbanism.com. Uh, you can go to Google and search for Death Race 2016 and get all the data. Stephen Schultes, gosh, Steve, thanks so much. It's nice to talk to you. Thank you, Chuck. Yep. Hey, you come out and visit me sometime soon. I can't wait. All right. Take care. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. 
We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah. 